For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in John chapter 6. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to try to get through pretty much the whole chapter. And what I want to call to your attention is as we study through the book of John, I don't know if you've gone and back and caught any of the earlier teachings that are available online. I would encourage you to do that. But one of the things that we're seeing is a major theme that we see particularly in the book of John is Jesus is wrestling with people to explain to them that spiritual reality is more important than physical reality. And this comes up in many ways. God's saying, look, the eternal part of you is your spirit, is your soul. That's the part that goes on. And so in a very real sense, who you really are goes way beyond your body. And yes, there are physical needs and those are important, but they're far less important than the things that are going to affect eternity and who you are and your ability to relate with God and other people moving into eternity future. And so there's a lot of points where we see this. We see it uh, when Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2. He's saying, you know, that this whole thing in the temple is supposed to teach people about spiritual things, and you've turned it into a marketplace. You know, the spiritual part of this is the most important part. When he runs into the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who's a very educated, learned Pharisee who understands the Bible but doesn't understand some of the basic, most important points about faith, he says, you have to be born of the flesh, but you also have to be born of the spirit in order to have eternal life. You need a relationship with God in order to have that spiritual component of who you are. You have to be born spiritually, and that happens after you're born physically as an act of faith in in God. He talks to the Samaritan woman, and they have this big wrangle where they're talking about, well, do they worship at the temple in Samaria, or do they worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and what is it that God really wants? And Jesus really poignantly says to her, I'm telling you, a time is coming and now is where the true followers of God will worship God, not in this mountain and not at the temple, but the true followers of God will worship God in spirit and in truth. They will understand the truth of God and they will understand the importance of the spiritual reality that God is trying to get us to see, trying to get us to understand. And so this debate, this battle between physical comfort and the physicality of our world and the spiritual reality that God wants us to wrestle with brings us into tension with him at a lot of points because the physical world is far more tangible. You know, we, we interact with the physical world through our senses and it seems very real. And the spiritual world seems sort of theoretical and it's experiential in some ways. But, you know, a lot of it is based on looking at evidence and coming to decide what is true, even though I can't see, taste, touch, or smell spiritual things in most cases. And so God has this tension that he brings into our lives. And there's sort of what we want and what God wants. And Jesus keeps running up against this as he's interacting with people. You know, what we want is physical safety. We want to know that we're going to be protected, that our, we're going to be whole, that we're, you know, we're going to be okay, that we're going to have what we need, and that we're not going to be put in too much danger physically. But what God wants is eternal security. What God wants for us is for us to be locked in to a relationship with him forever. 
that no matter what happens to us on earth, no matter what happens to our bodies, that we would know and have the confidence of knowing that we are going to be spending eternity with him and with others in a place where there is no evil, there is no death, there is no pain, where justice has prevailed and love reigns. And so from his perspective, that's far more important. And we tend to we tend to bump up against him on that. We want comfort. We want to have full bellies. We want to have a roof over our head. We want to avoid unnecessary pain and suffering. We would like to be entertained. We would like to be left alone just to, you know, try to enjoy and have peace and relaxation. That's really what we want from our physical perspective. What God wants is for our lives to have meaning. And those really don't match up very well, do they? If you want to do something that matters, it's going to be hard. It's going to be risky. It's going to put you in situations that people who want to be comfortable wouldn't willingly go into. But God says our time here is limited, and we have an opportunity here to be used by him to advance his cause of love and mercy and kindness and justice And that this world is a dark place where people basically live selfishly. So if you want a life of meaning, you're going to have to go out into that world of selfishness and be an example of sacrificial love and the truth of God, which is going to mean suffering in some ways. But a life of meaning is so much more important from God's perspective than just a life of comfort. We want autonomy. We basically just want to be in control of our own environment. We want to be in control of ourselves. We want to keep people away who seem dangerous or like even just annoying. And we want to decide right and wrong for ourselves. But God wants community. He wants us connected with each other, involved with each other. And we're looking out into the world and we're like, there's a lot of people out there that I, I think would do a lot of harm to me. And God's like, yeah. Go love them. It's what you were made for. And so we see how this physical reality and this spiritual reality kind of bring this tension into our lives. And and what Jesus is doing over and over and over again is bringing people to see that point of tension and asking them to agree with God that the spiritual reality is more important. So we get to John 6, starting in verse 1, and we read, you know, he's just been uh, down in Jerusalem confronting the Pharisees. He's just had this big confrontation with them. It says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or known as the Sea of Tiberias by the Romans. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near, and therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing the huge crowd that was coming, says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now what's interesting about this is, you know, we said Jesus was down in Jerusalem, so just sort of getting a geographical picture of what's happening here. Israel is, you know, a very small country, and so this this walk from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee would have taken a day or two wasn't that far. This is the area where a lot of Jesus' operations happen. They have uh, a thing going on in Capernaum where they seem to be in, in Galilee and Capernaum quite a bit. And it's around what they call the Sea of Galilee. 
we zoom in, we see a bigger picture. And if you've ever been, I encourage everyone, if they have the opportunity, to go and visit Israel and go to the Sea of Galilee because it is not a sea. It is a, it is a reasonably sized lake. Okay, if you look at this to get scale, it's uh, at its widest point, it's 8.1 miles wide, and it's on its longest point, 13 miles long. So, to give you some perspective, if we were to take the Sea of Galilee and put it inside of 270, (laughs) that's how much space it would take up, pull out, and if it were in Ohio, it would look like that. Right? So, the perspective here I mean, that's a big lake, there's no lake other than the Great Lakes, obviously, which are much bigger. There's no other lake in Ohio that's that size, but it's a lake. And so, you know, they would fish there, and there were communities, you know, around the lake. But that's where they're headed. That's where they're going. And Jesus is up here in this area, and, you know, people are gathering probably in this area. And they're sitting up there. They're kind of in the hills. He says that, that he retreated into the mountains. And all of a sudden, it turns out, all these people are following them into sort of the middle of nowhere. And it says 5,000, but it's counting just the, it says 5,000 men. So it's not counting women and children. We don't know how many people were there, but it was a lot of people. And it was not near any city center where provisions, you know, could be found. And, you know, put yourself in Philip's shoes. Jesus is watching this and he's like, hey, Phil, why don't you feed these guys? It's just like, what do you do? Lord, why are you asking me? How do you, how do you just produce a meal unexpectedly for 5,000 people? We're in the middle of nowhere. How do you do that? What are you talking about, God? And so one of the disciples in verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to Jesus, well, there's a boy here who has about five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, having given thanks, and he distributed it to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so this is the famous, the feeding of the 5,000, where they take this small amount of food that they have available, and God miraculously just makes it a supply that doesn't run out. And there's lots of things to think about here. There's lots of ways that, you know, we can look at this and, and learn about God. I mean, one of the more important things that I think we should recognize here is while there is this tension, God does care about our physical needs. It's not like Jesus is like, let them starve, you know, there, you know, fasting is so spiritual, right? He does care. I mean, if you read your Bible, one of the things that God cares about the most is the plight of the poor. And so it's not that God is saying physical things don't matter. Only think about spiritual things. He's saying physical things do matter. They just don't matter in the same way with the same weight that spiritual things do. Another thing that we see here is the way that God, and we see this repeatedly throughout Scripture. Why does God raise up prophets? Why does God raise up teachers and preachers and evangelists and all these people? God loves to work through human agency. 
Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to do. If he's truly God, he could have said, you know, have falafel fall from the sky, and it would have happened, right? But instead, Jesus engages his followers and says, I want you to be involved. Take whatever you have and give it away. And take these baskets and God will provide. And that's another great thing that we see here as people who want to follow God. We often feel like our resources are not enough. We don't have enough. We look out into the world. What do we say? God wants to send us out into the darkness, into the selfish world to bring love and light and mercy and justice to the world. Now, if you feel like you have the resources to do that, you are mistaken. None of us do. None of us are adequate. You know, the the first thing, one of the things that often stops us from doing something about all the injustice that we see is who am I in the face of such need? But God is awesome in the sense that he wants to engage us. He wants to invite us to be involved. And he wants us to bring what we have. And he says, let me take care of the rest. You bring what you have. And I will take that and do things with it far beyond your resources. And the picture here is really cool. There's 12 disciples, and at the end, there's 12 baskets left full of food. And this relates really well back to the woman at the well in John 4, where Jesus was ministering to her, and the disciples came with lunch, and they were like, are you hungry? And he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. And so there's a picture here of we participate in God's work. We don't have enough for ourselves. We give what we have. And then God makes sure that we have what we need in abundance. Whether that's food or energy or time or just compassion or love or mercy or patience, whatever it is that we need, God can provide those things as we actively step out to serve him. And we have this beautiful picture from this miracle that communicates, you know, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching his disciples some fundamental, important truths about what it means to be his disciple and how that whole situation works. It's also interesting to note God, in this case, gives the people what they want. They're always clamoring for miracles and big shows and some kind of miraculous sign. And he does that in a big way here. And it's impressive. You know, this is dinner and a show, which is really what we all want at the heart of who we are, is just dinner and a show, right? That, like, to, to have a miracle that results in also a full belly, what, what, physically, what could be more wonderful than that, right? And so, you know, he comes towards us, and they experience this. And it's like, you know, they know that there were just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, but all of a sudden there's this abundance that God has produced through Jesus. And they're like, this is the best thing ever. What a guy. You know, we want to be your followers because you can just do stuff like this. And we really appreciate that. And so we read in verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly a prophet who has come into the world. And so Jesus, it says, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again into the mountains by himself alone. Which is kind of interesting. Jesus has come to be the king of the universe. That is who he is. 
And when the people see this miracle, they get the show and their bellies are full and they're excited. They're like, this is, let's go tell Rome there's a new king in Israel. Right? And Jesus, it says he knows their hearts. He knows that, you know, they don't mean it. They're not really ready. They're having an emotional response to something that was highly unusual and highly impressive. But their hearts are not in the place where they really want Jesus to be king. This is not real faith. This is an emotional reaction to the situation. But he knows that, you know, if they are tested, if they are put in a situation, which they would be if they went to Rome and said, hey, we've got a new king in Israel, they're not ready to follow through with it because they don't really see their need. So we go on in the book of John and Jesus withdraws. He kind of goes back into the mountains by himself. The disciples don't know where he is. They jump back in the boat and they start headed back to Capernaum. And so they're sailing along and Jesus walks out on the lake to meet them, (laughs) hops in the boat and they go back to Capernaum. And that's that's where they are for the next scene. But what happens in the meantime is the people who had all, you know, stayed the night outside and had this meal and they wake up in the morning and they're like, Jesus is gone. The disciples are gone. It's breakfast time. What do we do now? And so they all hop in their boats, it says, in 624. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him there on the other side, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And you begin to see this scene of like what happens when God actually gives us what we want. Right? They're just now, 5,000 people are just following Jesus around looking for another miracle. They want another show, right? The miracle is like the food. It's impressive and it's great and when your belly is full, but it doesn't last, right? That, That feeling that they want of like, whoa, this is real, has faded. And so has the food. And so they show up. Following him, and Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God has set his seal. And we see exactly the same scenario that we've seen again and again. We have the physical reality and the spiritual reality. And the people are all focused on the miracle and the food and having a sign. And Jesus is like, look, that was great and that was good. But that's that food sustained you for a few hours. You need spiritual food that will sustain you for eternity. And that's what I really want to give you. And what do the people say? It says in verse 28, they say, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Tell us what we have to do to be like you and to do the things that you do. What what lessons do we have to do? What does God want from us? What are the hoops that we have to jump over so that we can be like you and know God like you, God, like you know God? And maybe even do the things that you do. Teach us how to do that. And what's Jesus' response? Jesus says, How about instead of that, I give you eternal life? 
I explain to you how to be right with God. Because that's something that you can't earn. That's not something that you do. And it's not something that you deserve. And it's not something that you work for. And it's not something where you're just a really good person. And then suddenly God finally accepts you. It's something that you receive. And I'm willing to give it to you if you'll receive it. And their response is, um, how about you just show us what to do and we'll earn it ourselves. Give us something to do, God. Show us how to be righteous people. Show us how to, we want to we earn this. We want to deserve this. And we want to save ourselves. So teach us, what do we have to do to be acceptable to God? And Jesus does something brilliant at this point. He just flips it and puts it in language that they understand. And he says to them in verse 29, Oh, you want to know what you can do? Here's the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. The only thing that you can do to be right with God, he says, is believe in me. Receive my teaching. Look at and listen to what I'm telling you and believe in it. It's not something that you earn. The only work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. And so he's, in a really poignant way, trying to get them to see the reality. You don't do the works of God. You receive the gift of God through faith. He says, through faith in me. That's what you need. And they just don't get it. And so they say, uh, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Which is crazy, isn't it? Right? But it's also kind of how humanity works, right? They're saying, okay, if you're going to make a bold claim like that, show us a miracle. And they had all just experienced a miracle. And it's clear they're just hungry, right? They came because they want to see it again. And it really doesn't matter what Jesus is saying. They're, they're just trying to do whatever they can do to be like, Jesus, do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teaching God, gift, eternal life, blah, blah, blah. Do it. Show us. We want to see it again. We want to feel the way that we felt when we saw you do this last night. And they even like give him a little lead. They say, by the way, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're referencing something that happened in the Old Testament where God would regularly feed the nation of Israel as they were traveling through the desert and there, were no, there was no food available. God would cause this stuff called manna to just appear on the ground as though it were dew and people could eat it and it would totally sustain them. It was how he fed so many people as they spent 40 years wandering the desert. And they were like, hey, you like scripture, right, Jesus? We got a great idea of the kind of sign that you could show to us. Do the manna thing. We're hungry. And Jesus says in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven. It is my father who gives you true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, you want physical food, but there is spiritual food that God has made available to you that is so much more important. And this just starts to look to me like a Monty Python skit at this point. And they say, yes, Lord, always give us this bread. 
You know, it's like this, he's out there and he's explaining this and someone's like, oh, did he say bread? You know, and they're like, yes, please, I'll have bread. And you know, if you're Jesus, you're just like, I didn't mean literal bread. I meant spiritual bread. But he doesn't do that. But I mean, they just seem ridiculous, right? They see this crazy, cool miracle. They want more. They want food. They want comfort. They want miracles. They want signs. They want him to do the stuff. And Jesus is coming back with, basically, you know, this is why I don't do that much of this stuff, because it doesn't really satisfy you. And it doesn't really point to what you need. There is something that you desperately need. And if you understood the way that the universe really works, and you understood eternity, and you understood God, you would care very little about food and bread that comes from heaven or from a basket. And you would be so excited about eternal life. If only you could understand. And so these people seem very ridiculous to us, but the reality is, is they are, we are them. We can also be quite ridiculous if you think about the demands that we put on God. We often have these deals that we make with God in our hearts, but he doesn't agree to them. We just kind of put them on conditions, so, you know, we somehow think that God is, you know, so lucky to have someone like me. And just so, you know, he, he really has to be happy that someone of my gifts and my talents and my abilities are willing to be on his side. And he, he surely, if I am willing to do that, he surely will reward me. And so we have these deals that we create in our heart, whether we recognize it or not. Sometimes we're not even aware that we're doing it, but we are. And we say, well, I will serve you, Lord, if my marriage is good. That's all I ask is just for peace in my home, peace with my spouse. And as long as that is good and, you know, I have contentment there, then anything else you want, God, I will do for you. Just give me that one thing. I will serve you, God, as long as my kids behave. They don't rebel and they're respectful and they don't, they don't shame me to my neighbors and my friends. And, you know, you protect them and keep them safe. I will serve you, God, as long as my, my home church grows, as long as the ministry efforts that I put forward bring me some kind of satisfaction and glory in the way that I want them to come. I will serve you, God, as long as you keep cancer away or don't let me have a heart attack or keep me from getting hit by a car. I will serve you, God, as long as I have enough money, enough food, whatever it is, you know, we all have these things. And really, when we have those things, and all of us do, myself included, we're no different than these people who are being so ridiculous, chasing after Jesus, saying, do it again. They're putting conditions on their willingness to follow him. And the question that really I think everyone should wrestle with when we read this passage is, what about the truth? We're saying, God, I will serve you as long as you do this, as long as you do that, as long as you give me this or you don't give me that, right? And we're saying, you know, I will be in this relationship where you are sort of the cosmic genie who gives me certain promises that things will go the way that I want them to go. And the question is, is but is he God? Is this real? Is this true? And that is the question that you will be forced 
to reckon with when things go wrong. When the circumstances and the deals that you've made with God in your heart, I will serve you as long as X, don't work out according to your expectations, that will bring you right smack back to this place. Are you doing this? Are you serving God? Are you loving others? Are you living this life? Are you making these sacrifices and making these choices because you want God to do certain things for you or because he is God and he is real and he is worthy of our love? And regardless of the things that God doesn't promise, God does not promise physical safety. He does not promise us great marriages and obedient children and exemption from disease, and health issues. What he promises us is eternal life. And God always keeps his promises, but we want to hold him to promises that he doesn't make. And we say, show me the stuff. Show me a miracle. Keep me as I serve you from this pain. And God will allow sometimes these things to come into our lives And then we have to wrestle with this. Do I do this because of what I get out of it or do I do it because it's true? Because it's real? Because I am convinced that God, the God of the Bible is the real God and that he deserves my loyalty. He deserves my worship. He deserves my obedience. Whether I get what I want or not. That is what they are wrestling with. And that is what we do wrestle with is when the blessings run out or don't go the way that we think they should go, are we still loyal to the truth? Because the truth is the thing that doesn't change. Your circumstances change. Your environment changes. Your body changes. Your health changes. All of those things are in flux, and they are incredibly vulnerable. But the truth doesn't change. And if you're... On an economy of truth, I do what I do for God because I believe he is real and he is worthy. Then you're unshakable in your path. But none of us do that for that reason all the time. We wrestle with it because we're physical beings. We all have this. I am all about God. I am zealous for the things of God until he breaks the deal, until he calls me to persevere in a difficult marriage. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled with who have said, you know, Ryan, I've, I've been married for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I've been in counseling the whole time and it's been miserable the entire time. My wife and I just can't seem to make it out. My husband and I just can't seem to work this out. And I know that God is good and that he is loving and that he would not want me to be so unhappy. Wrong. He wouldn't want you to be so unforgiving. He wouldn't want you to be so rigid. He has lessons that he wants you to learn about perseverance and forgiveness and dependence on him. That is God's way, is unity, not relational destruction. A loved one gets sick and you just think, God, you know, I've done so much for you. Why can't you just exempt me from this because that's not the way of living in a fallen world. Terrible things happen to good people. You say, but I deserve. And that's where our true heart is revealed. 
that sentiment, I deserve. The reality is, is what we deserve is hell. That's the only thing that we deserve because of the injustice in our hearts. But what we get is love and mercy, eternal life and redemption because of the greatness of who God is. And so whether you're leading a discouraged home church or you don't get recognition for something you've done, these things will again and again and again lead us back to this point of tension. Am I doing this because of what I get out of it or am I doing it because it's true? Someone comes along and and points out a character issue that you just really, you just are really upset that, you know, someone would have the audacity to expose this thing. And you know in your heart that it's true, but you're just so upset that someone would confront you with it. And it's like, why do you do the things that you do? Why are you here? And we wrestle with that. And so that's what they're wrestling with. And Jesus says in 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he, will, he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I'm offering you bread, he says. It's just not the bread that you want. It is the bread that you need. And it is so much of a greater gift than what you got in the, out there in the mountains last night. And if only you guys could understand that it is me, myself, who is the sustainer of your spiritual life. And if you would come to me, I would gladly give it to you. He's saying to them that your list of demands, the things that you want me to meet, are not the things that I promise to meet. But what I do promise you is eternal life. And yet you think that this other thing, which is far less important, is better. He says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. He says, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that you can have eternal security. You can be assured, no matter what happens, that you're going to win at the game of life, that the 60, 70, 80 years that you might be lucky enough to live on earth will be a blip on the radar screen, will be a tiny speck of your eternal existence. And all of that eternal existence will be in a place where everything is the way that it's meant to be, where you are the way that you were meant to be, the environment is the way that it was meant to be, your neighbors are the way that you were meant to be, and we'll all be connected with each other and God. But that comes only through faith. But if you give me that faith, you are sealed and I will never reject you. He's saying to them, I am your spiritual salvation, your spiritual food, and that is so much important, more important than what you're asking me for. And we read in 41 that therefore they're sitting there and they're listening to this and they start grumbling and they say, what do you mean I am the bread that came down out of heaven? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say I have come down of heaven? I know your mom and your dad, Jesus. We know how you got here. You didn't descend from heaven. And we start to see what gets revealed in our hearts when we're confronted with this dichotomy. We want God to be who we want him to be. And he is better than that. But he is not what we want. And so they begin to turn on him. They feel like Jesus is going too far. Just give us breakfast. 
And he says, look, show's over. I'm not going to give you another show. I can't show you how to earn God's love because it can't be done. I can give it to you. You can receive it as a free gift, but you can't earn it. The only way that you're going to get what you really need is through me. Truly, truly, he says in verse 47, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. A lot of good that manna did. They died. Because it wasn't the bread of eternal life. It was the bread of the food for the day. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am giving up of my body so that all of you can have eternal life. I am what you need and I will sustain you in a way that will last forever. And then they began to argue, how can he give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> Jesus, what? <laughs> but the context is clear, right? It's clear that he's not saying, okay, this whole thing is really about cannibalism. That's very clear. And some people will say, well, this is about communion, right? Oh, yeah. The bread becomes the body and the wine becomes the blood. And so you have to take communion and then you get to have eternal life. A couple problems with that. One is, what did Jesus just say? The work of God is to believe. And any who believe in them have eternal life. Second, communion doesn't exist. It, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It would be several years until the upper room where he would give them the ritual of communion as a symbol of the kind of thing that he's talking about right here. What he's saying is, is my body has to be destroyed and received by you. I'm going to go to the cross and all of the judgment that you deserve is going to be poured out on me. I'm going to be crushed and I'm going to spill my blood to take the judgment that you deserve. And that's how I become the sustaining power my body and my blood are the sustaining power for your spiritual life in eternity. And what you need to do is believe. And he's explaining that to them. And we read in 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus, you're grossing us out. And Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if, I, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is the real deal. This is the truth that matters far more. And you see this debate that we keep going back and forth with. Is it the spiritual and the physical and how Jesus is trying to get them to see this? 
And we read, as a result of him saying this, many of his disciples withdrew. Now, there were the 12 apostles, but there were more people than that that followed Jesus that are called, referred to as disciple. Disciple just means learner, right? Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis had disciples. Jesus didn't invent this. We only, in a modern context, have that perspective. But there were, there were probably several hundred people following Jesus at this point, And many of them turn away at this point and say, I can't. I can't deal with this. I can't accept this. And so Jesus then turns to the 12 who are like the inner circle, right? And he says, what about you guys? Do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter, who so often says so many crazy things at the inappropriate time, just knocks it out of the park with something awesome. He really, he really gets it right this time. And he says, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go? Do you see what Peter did? He landed on truth. He he didn't say, "Uh, I think what you're saying is great, and it makes perfect sense. What he says is, I just know that you're true. And I want to live a life of truth. I don't want to live a life of falsehood. So I'm going to stay right where I am. And this is a moment that many have had. I have had many of these moments in my life. And if you come to follow God and you try to walk with God, which is, you know, follow him and bring him into your life and live your life according to the principles of God, there will be several times, you know, where you will, something will happen, you know, and you'll come to that point where you're like, is this really worth doing? If following God means this, Do I really want to follow God? Or at least as radically as I'm trying to follow God. Maybe I'll just settle and just kind of tamp it down a bit. And then, you know, these things, the suffering that I'm going through won't be as intense. You know, that thing of when you're not respected, when you're trying to serve somebody and love somebody and engage with them and help them along their way and they treat you like garbage. Or you're loving somebody and they betray you and turn against you. Those are the times where you will again and again come to that point and you'll sense God asking me, asking you, are you going to turn away? Is this it? Is this the point where you shut me out? And if you do that as a believer in Christ, you will still be in eternity with him. It's not, it's unconditional love. If you receive that gift, you do not have to go further. And that's what many do. I mean, many do this. I've been walking with God for 20 years now. And I can't tell you how many of the people that I thought were so much more godly and so much more zealous and so much more gifted and wonderful than I could ever be are gone. And some of them are gone like they don't believe in God anymore, but most of them are gone. They just don't want to do the disciple of Jesus Christ thing anymore. They make a decision and they just sort of fade out and decide This is as far as I go with God because they have reached a point of controversy where they had a deal in their head, God, you provide this for me and I will serve you, but you don't provide it and I will not. And we come to those points where we say, Lord, I'm not happy with where my life is right now. And then we're left with the question of what is truth? Okay, you're not happy You don't like your circumstances, you're in pain, and you're realizing that in some cases, this pain is a direct result of your willingness to follow God. 
But we have to come back to and must come back to that wrestling point of, okay, but what am I going to do? Deny God and pretend like he doesn't exist? I'm too, far, I'm too far down the road. I've seen too much. I've experienced too much of who God is. The only way that I could do that was just to consciously decide I am going to live a lie. And that's what Peter's communicating here. He's like, God, we can't go anywhere because we know you are the Messiah. And no matter how hard it is and no matter how unpopular it is, and yeah, we're seeing people that we've been worshiping with and fellowshipping with and spending time with turn away from you. And, you know, what you're saying is hard for us too. But we're just not going to go fake it now because you are the truth. And we have to wrestle with God in those times ourselves. And so that raises the question for all of us. How far is too far for you? What are your secret deals? What conditions do you have with God? And have you reflected on that and asked yourself, how important is the truth? You know, I think about that and I've, I've run up against this. You know, as a young believer, I wanted to, you know, be somebody who could teach and who could lead. And, you know, the, uh, the home church leader that was over me for many years, you know, just thought that I was dangerous and carnal and, and she was mostly right. But I remember, you know, she was this 80-year-old missionary who had been raised in Africa, and, and she was leading this college group of, you know, this home church of college people. And I remember just thinking, she's just so old and stuffy and rigid, you know. <laughs> and I would try to do these things, and she would say, you know, you need to learn how to follow. You need to learn how to submit to God. And I would just be like, you need to learn how to follow. <laughs> And I remember lying in bed one night and, and, and praying about this. And it was like, I'm going to go. I'm, just, I'm done with this church and I'm done with this thing. And it was this like, well, where am I going to go? I mean, there are other churches that are, that are good. And I mean, there are other places that I could go where God still is. But I know that I'm going to, if they're any good, I'm going to run into the same problem there that I have here, which is I need to be broken. I am selfish and prideful. And that's happened many other times where there have been these moments of, I want this, and God says no. And you have to come back to, well, do I believe that this is true? Do I believe that this is true? And God will be faithful to bring us to those points of tension again and again and again if we are committed to walking with him. Because he loves us and because he wants us to see the truth, that the spiritual reality is far more important than the physical reality. And if you don't know God, I would just say to this, turning to him in faith, this thing that we're talking about, maybe I haven't exactly created an attractive picture of what that might look like, <laughs> but it's an honest one. It's the truth. And it's important that you hear that. It's important that you get that. If you come and invite Jesus into your life, your life will change. It will change for the better. It will be followed by a lot of experiences. There are things that God wants to show you once you trust him that we all are convinced because God has moved in our lives. But we can't prove it to you because there's an experiential component to that knowledge. But we become more convinced after we believe because God moves and gives us more truth. I know that God spoke in my heart. I know that God led me into this thing that was so good. 
And you have those experiences after you make that decision. If you come to faith, you will change eternity. Who you are and what you do and where you go from this life will change forever. And it will not, it will not remove all the pain and suffering that you experience in this life. In some cases, it will enhance it. Because if you really follow after God, you really will go out into the dark places. And there is a battle going on out there. And many of us have the scars of fighting that battle. And many of us have made lots of mistakes still that, you know, and just experienced the pain of our own bad choices. But what you will have is meaning. The thing that all of us would say from the day that we accepted Christ to now is we have known that our lives matter and that there's a purpose behind it. And there's meaning. And we don't sit around wondering, what am I supposed to be doing? We sit around wondering, why am I doing this? And we sit around wondering, am I doing enough? But we know why we're here. And we know what it is that we're supposed to do. And we know if, we're, if we take the time in the midst of that suffering, we know that that suffering too is another thing that can add to that meaning that God has given our lives. Accepting Christ will not exempt you from injustice and hardship. It will be the best decision that you could ever make in all of eternity. And we, we beg you on behalf of Christ to make that choice for yourself. Because it is the choice that you were made to make, which is to be with God. Let's pray together. Yeah, Lord, we, um, we are all geared towards selfishness, towards uh, avoiding suffering. We fear pain. We fear hardship. Um, but there are more important things than our comfort. We recognize that. And there are things that are worth suffering for, and you are chief among them. And our fellow man is also a part of that. We recognize that as well, that we need to be willing to go outside of our comfort because there are people who are in need. And we just ask God that you'll show us those opportunities, that you'll give us, you'll embolden us and give us strength so that we can take what little we have and offer it to you and see the miracle of what you will do with it in other people's lives. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.